and welcome to Perplexagogy, the podcast for people who are perplexed about pedagogy. I'm Nicola Fern. I'm a senior digital learning developer at Durham University. Hi, I'm Rochelle O'Brien. I'm a senior learning designer, just had a job title change, so better get that right. And I'm also working for Durham University. Uh, This time we're going to be showcasing the Playful Learning Conference that was held in Leicester in July. We'll be profiling a few of the sessions presented by colleagues at Durham University, featuring some reflections from those who attended. Uh, first off, Rochelle spoke to Nick Whitten, who literally wrote the book on playful learning, about her experience of organising and attending the conference. So, welcome to this part of the Perplexagogy podcast, where we're looking at the Playful Learning Conference. For this section, I'm talking to the wonderful Nick Whitten, and I've got some questions, and she's completely unprepared for them. So, let's get started. So, the first one, can you tell us a little bit about the Playful Learning Conference and where the idea came from for it? Um, so, it came about in in 20... Gosh, 2013, myself and a couple of colleagues were lucky enough to be given national teaching fellowships. And we were quite limited on the things that we could use to spend the money on. And we got having a conversation, I think it was at a conference, probably in a bar, about how it was it that we all work in education. And yet the conferences that we go to were all very didactic about us sitting in rooms being people talking at us and in some cases people even reading their papers to us and why weren't we particularly in education being able to do this a bit better and by the end of a pint or two we decided that we would use our national teaching fellowship money to found our own conference and the idea of it originally was the anti-conference that we take every aspect of a conference and work out well if it works let's keep it and if it doesn't let's not and so the principles of playful learning were, were very much built around let's do something really different with a conference, something that's actually engaging, something that energizes people, but not necessarily throwing away the bad, the good stuff, but keep getting rid of some of the bad stuff and doing things a bit differently. I think you've managed to capture that really well. And something, so we've filmed a few different interviews now with different people who were at the conference, some people who've presented as well, just about their experiences. And one thing that's come out quite a lot is the fact that there's no vendor affiliation at the Playful Learning Conference and how that's a real positive thing. Was that something that was one of the things that you chose not to include or is that just something that kind of happened organically? No, it was very much a conscious decision because I'm sure we've all been to the conferences where you have to go and spend time looking around a um, a series of vendors getting a lot of tap that you don't want or need, which is neither good for your own mental health or the environment. Um, equally, I think being apolitical is really important from our stance to be able to say what we want without having to be tied in to or beholden to companies that are giving us money. Um, so it was a really clear policy decision from day one. It again, ties into one of our stands around integrity, um, not to get involved with vendors. We've always tried to keep it at cost. So when we were originally talking about things that we didn't like about conferences, then um, all three of us regularly went to a big sector conference, which was about making money. It was a for-profit conference, which I always sat very uncomfortably with me because actually it was a conference like, like Playful Learning that was designed and run by the community for the community using a lot of people's physical and emotional labor. So for, from our perspective, what we've always tried to do is run the Playful Learning so that it, it just about breaks even, but that there is 
any additional funds are used to fund people who wouldn't otherwise be able to go, so people from different sectors and particularly for students. Um, and it's never tied in with making profit. And as such, we've never actually needed vendor affiliation either. I think it's really evident. And I think the difference that that makes to a conference atmosphere and a conference environment is something that's really valuable. So as somebody who has now been a participant and a speaker, which is exciting, uh, I'm very grateful for that. Are there any other specific things that you really wanted to keep or really wanted to get rid of that you think have helped make playful learning what it currently is? So we wanted to get rid of anything that was particularly didactic. So what we're very specific on doing is getting people to come up with sessions that are interactive. Um, It's really important that it's still rigorous because the nature of the subject is such that all of us in our practice will have people going, oh, it's just play, it's just people messing around, it's just silly. So actually it's more important, I think, than potentially other subject areas that we do show this is a rigorous academic exploration of the field. Equally, it doesn't have to be boring. Having said that, one of the things that we did decide to keep was the idea of the keynote, because I think there's something, when we, we thought about it, and, and well, again, our keynotes are probably quite different from your traditional keynote, but they are quite keynote in format in that it's somebody who is heading the stage for 45 minutes and they can basically do what they want. Um, and it is a plenary session, so it's about bringing everyone together. But again, with the keynotes, what we tried to do was to say to people, it's really up to you. You can be as interactive or as traditional as you like. But it was about trying to give different voices um, a space. So it was about potentially people from different sides of academia, people who weren't in academia, people who were quite early career, people who'd never keynoted before, um, and people from different backgrounds. So we've really tried to install that. I think the inclusivity part is really key in everything that we do, that it's actually we're about trying to make an inclusive community. Um, and that, that's been sort of really key. To, I'm, I'm trying to think, we do have five pillars, which um, is in James Charnock's chapter of the wonderful book, Playful Learning, published by Ridledge in 2019, edited by Witten and Mosley. Um, but he did kind of put together these sort of, these were the five ideals on what um, playful learning was was grounded. And obviously we've talked about the kind of integrity side and then there's the, the rigor side, which is about, um, you know, making sure that we are as, if not more academically rigorous, simply because of the nature of the area that we're in. Um, but then I think one of the things that we did want to do was have mischief, that there is a this playful side to playfulness about surprises and mischief, silliness and getting people out of their comfort zone and being not afraid to fail. Um, and we really did want to kind of make that a little bit mis- mischievous. So we had things like this this year, we had a time travel theme and we all got to go through a sparkly time tunnel. And then, and I, I, we want to do things that you wouldn't get at other conferences. And I don't think there are many conferences that will allow you to go through a sparkly time tunnel. And definitely not many that will encourage you to wave your arms so that you can change the year. Well, indeed. But, but again, if you think about the, the arm waving, there's really good reasons for doing things like that in terms of breaking up attention span in terms of physical movement, in terms of our ability to retain things, to do with um, thinking about the way that we move and the way that we memorise. So it, although it might be a little bit silly, there was obviously a lot of academic thought that went behind it. Absolutely. And I think from what you're saying and from my experience of the conference and of playful learning itself, it's very much value-based and there is a real strong emphasis on doing these things for the right reasons yeah and i think it's because of the kind of collegiality side of it we 
one thing we've always struggled with is how to get meaningful feedback because the feedback forms at the end of conferences are just boring and pointless. So we've always put a lot of thought into how to do it in a way that actually is, is a bit fun. So we had, we've had we had um, throwing paper feedback aeroplanes and then throwing trying to get paper feedback balls through a basketball hoop. And then I remember my favourite was the pirate year where we decided that we were going to do little messages in a bottle. So as a result of which we had to get, I think, about 120 of those little Actimel bottles and which basically involved my children and I drinking an awful lot of Actimel for about two weeks. Oh, wow. You drank 120 Actimel in two weeks between three of you. Quite a lot. I had very good gut health. I bet you did. Well, that's an advert for Actimel, if nothing else. So if you did want vendor affiliation, maybe Actimel is the one. <laughs> to be honest, I never want to see another Actimel again. A- but on the side of making mistakes, some of the feedback we got from that is actually we're using non-recyclable plastic bottles, not a terribly good idea. You know, so in hindsight, while it was a fun thing to do, it probably wasn't the most environmentally sustainable approach we've ever taken. But at least it shone a light on the environmental and sustainability aspect that maybe was not something that might have been thought of previously. It was entirely intentional. Absolutely. Yeah, well, there we go. You wanted to learn <laughs> from it and you did. One of the things I'm really curious about, in your role as an organiser, how do you come up with ideas? So the ideas bit is never really the problem. It generally involves the ideas. Yeah, there's loads of ideas. The bit, I think, is implementing it. So I have a lovely diagram that Alex and I did, because Alex Mosley and myself has kind of been, we we really, I I guess, the co-founders and have been the, the core. We've had other people be involved in it, but I guess the two of us have were the ones that kind of dragged it kicking and screaming into the real world. And I have this great diagram that I did, which is basically he and I go to the pub. I come up with some really stupid idea. Alex implements it. And then I take credit for it. And that seems to work. So basically the best ideas are had in the pub. Is that is that the takeaway? Well, it's not necessarily the pub. We're happy with alcohol-free spaces as well. But I think it's it's creating safe spaces where people don't mind saying silly things. So for every idea that makes it to playful learning, there's maybe 20 that don't. So I think that's part of it is, is having the safe space to generate lots and lots of silly ideas. Um, and then, again, there are some things that, that make it and then just never take off. So I think it's having the right group of people and the right safe space that people can say anything, because often it's not the first idea that people have. It's kind of bouncing an idea to and fro. So this year we did um, an interactive screening of Back to the Future. And actually, we only really decided we were going to do that about a month before the conference because we were going backwards and forwards and not really sure what we were going to do because we didn't want to do your kind of traditional sit-down dinner. But equally... We did want something that would get people involved and be inclusive. And, and I think that conver- the conversation around that was really just people bouncing off different ideas. And then until someone said, oh, do you know what, let's do interactive cinema. And then someone else said, oh, well, why not Back to the Future because of the theme? And it was like, oh, right, okay. But I don't think anybody would have come up with that on their own. And I think that's something that people at the conference found to be one of the best activities was that opportunity to watch a film together and join in and also have conversations and just sort of spend time together, which I guess comes back to the collegiality point and the safe spaces as well. So you've you've been an organiser. What are what's the experience like for you as a participant? Do you have a highlight from the last almost ten years? For most of it, certainly the when we were in Manchester, when I was also kind of leading in terms of the, on the ground, 
I was essentially running around organizing all the time. It's got a little bit lighter in Leicester because Alex is now doing the being the local person as well. Um, but certainly for the first two or three years, you're so bothered about is everybody, you know, is everybody enjoying it? Is it going to be a thing um, that you don't really get to go to sessions? There's also in when we were in Manchester, I was also running a project around escape rooms for the three years. So we had some school kids every session. We were organizing those. We were, there was there was just lots going on. And so I was meeting people, chatting to people involved in the in the kind of running of things, but I don't think it was a participant experience. Right, okay. So is that something that you hope to have in the future? Then? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, so this year was my last year as chair, um, which uh, despite popular rumour, they haven't booted me off. It was my decision. Um, and it, it was partly because I, I want to see what it's like as, as a delegate and partly because of the the idea of of having a legacy that if we have a conference that only has me and Alex at the heart of it, what happens when we retire or move on to other things? And the idea now is very much that we're looking at rolling chairs. So basically you're adhering to the values that you've already outlined and you're trying to encourage people who've maybe not done something like this before to get involved and have a go. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, two years from now, there'll be, look, there'll be another opening. Good to know for those people who are interested in playful learning and playfulness and wanting to uh, experience an anti-conference with lots of ideas and no vendors and potentially interactive cinema. Well, that's probably the one thing we won't have again. So far, we've never repeated a thing, but we're at one point where we have to, but it'll be interactive cinema in space or on the back of giraffes or upside down underwater. It won't be your traditional interactive cinema. Fair enough. We have to reinvent these things. Can't do them twice. If I know you've just mentioned that you haven't really experienced this as a participant. So in your role within the conference, um, do you have like a favourite moment that's happened? So I think pirate year, well, I suppose two. One pirate year, because uh, I just love the idea of dressing an entire conference up as pirates. Um, and I remember at one point we we had the whole dining room done up as pirate vessels and everybody was dressed as pirates and it was just very, very silly. So I do like that. But I think possibly my favourite moment ever was the year that we asked everyone to bring a cuddly toy as their avatar and we had all these cuddly toys tweeting and we organised a lecture that was just for the cuddly toys. And I still there's photos that I've like, I don't know, 100 cuddly toys sat in a lecture theatre listening to a cuddly eagle. And it was just, it was a silly aside, but just the willingness of a hundred people to just go, yeah, that's fine. I'll do that without questioning and just give themselves into that moment of it's silly, but yeah, fine. It's part of the community and it's, it's just fun without questioning or judging or going, that's not academic enough. I think it was lovely. I think you've kind of moved on to something that I wanted to mention and sort of ask you about as well. So one of the things that's come out from our discussions um, about the conference and also our experience of working with you, because we're fortunate enough to do that, and also reading around playful learning is the role that you play in the community around playfulness and the light that you absolutely are in this and the kind of people that come along and bring their cuddly toys and bring their cuddly eagles and that's something that you've really helped 
cultivate. Um, is that something that has come as a result? Is it something that's come at the same time? Is it just, is it intentional? I mean, just like to know a little bit more from that perspective. So I think part of it is that the values of playful learning are really our values. So particularly around inclusivity, around innovation, around collegiality, um, and about trying to get people to think in different ways and do things differently. So I think part of that is that it's just sort of a bit of bleed from, you know, if, if I was going to set up a conference, this is the one I'd set up. And that's because it, it typifies kind of my worldview. And I think in the same way that it does for the conference, it typifies my worldview of working relationships, you know, about giving people space to try new things, to innovate, to not worry too much about making mistakes, to, um, you know, but to do it in a rigorous and supported but possibly mischievous way. Um, but I do get that everybody is different. And I think this is always the issue of doing anything that's playful is it won't suit everybody. And there'll be people that feel really uncomfortable and I think we really need to acknowledge that there are different ways to play and that, I mean, by definition, if you're forced to play, it's not play. But, you know, with definitions aside, if you're forced to play, it's not fun for anyone. So I think it's about trying to nurture these spaces, which I do both at work and in terms of conference, about people can engage in different ways. And it's absolutely fine if they don't want to because there's other ways of being that aren't as playful and people live very rich, happy, unplayful lives and that's fine too. I like that. I really like that worldview. And as I say, I feel very fortunate to be a part of a team that gets to explore that. So we've talked about the fact that you're hoping to become a participant in the future. Do you have future plans in relation to the conference? Well, I plan to put a paper in next year. Um, I'm having nothing to do with the organising because I like want some surprises. Um, I'm actually planning, planning my 12-year-old, who will be then 13, is desperate to come. So I've told her the only way she gets to come is if she joint authors paper with me and presents it. Something that we've never quite managed at Playful Learning in terms of inclusivity that we wanted to put a crash on because it's very difficult, particularly for women, particularly women with young children, to go to conferences. And when we were in Manchester, it was lucky enough that I could, you know, we could just bring the kids and it was fine. But actually, I realised that people are not always as fortunate, and it's much more difficult when it's you go to a conference that's not based in your hometown. Um, we'd never got there because of very practical, legal, and expense issues. But for me, co- conferences that provide crashes would be awesome, and um, maybe that's a campaign for another day. Yeah, I like it. I know that I spoke to Katie at length at the conference about a dog conference as well where you can bring your dogs along Uh, but that's maybe an iteration for the future after the crashes so the last thing that I just wanted to ask about really is where we can find out more about the playful learning conference and about playful learning generally Um, is there anything that you'd like us to look at any books you might want to promote so there is playful learning conference website that I can't remember the URL off the top of my head, but I'm sure we can send you a copy to share with listeners. Um, obviously, the book that I've already plugged, which is a nice, it, it's, I edited it, but I didn't write a great deal of it. And there's lots of really good writing that isn't mine in there. Um, and that's a really practical look at kind of playful learning and what it might look like. Um, anything by Alison James is really strong. I mean, she's one of the, um, I suppose, 
big theorists in terms of the academic side of playful learning. And I've got a book coming out later this year, which is a big theoretical thing about playful learning. And I can't remember, can I remember the title? It's called Play and Learning in Adulthood, Reimagining the Politics, the Pedagogy and Politics of Education. And that will be in a library near you because it's really expensive. So I wouldn't recommend buying it. Um, but certainly it'll hopefully we'll have it in Durham Library by the end of the year. Excellent. Look forward to seeing it. Um, so thank you very much for joining us, Nick. It's been great to talk to you. Hopefully we'll hear more from you soon. Well, I really enjoyed interviewing Nick. So I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Although I couldn't attend the conference due to being super sick, I did my part in contributing to a session on accessible escape rooms, along with Rochelle, Ross Parker and other colleagues. Earlier on, we discussed the project and the session. Uh, I'm joined now with uh, Ross and Rochelle, who were with the DCAD contingent at the Playful Learning Conference recently. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Okay. Hi, yeah, I'm Ross Parker. I'm a senior digital education consultant in the Centre for Academic Development. And I'm Rochelle O'Brien. I'm a senior digital learning designer also in the Centre for Academic Development. So what was it that you were doing at the Playful Learning Conference? Were you de delivering sessions? Yes. So at the Playful Learning Conference, we delivered a session called well, it was originally called the Accessible Escape Room, but we recently changed that to the More Accessible Escape Room uh, for reasons which we can cover <laughs> throughout this podcast. In addition to Nick, Rochelle and myself that are all on this call, there was a number of other contributors to this project. So first of all, uh, Chris John, which is who is a digital learning developer, works alongside Nick. We've got Paul Finley, who's a digital learning advisor, we have Dr. Jason Anderson, who worked on the Arduino puzzles from physics. And finally, Dr. Malcolm Murray, who is the head of digital learning. So what was it that inspired the project? What was it that made you think that this was an area that was needing to be looked at? So uh, inherent in our jobs in DCAD um, with Professor Nicola Witten at the uh, controls is playful learning and playfulness in education. So back in wow it was 2019 now autumn of 2019 we got the email through for proposals for the playful learning conference 2020 and back in 2019 uh, sort of hot on everyone's lips in education was the um 2018 eu web content accessibility guidelines and universities wrangling with how on earth are we going to meet these uh, guidelines? That that so we we were looking at how do we provide accessibility statements for our uh, services, and it was very topical at the time. We were looking at what we could do for the Playful Learning Conference, and we were thinking, well, escape rooms have often been a, a very popular theme at the Playful Learning Conference, and for anybody who researchers playfulness i think the approach for for people who have explored the space of escape rooms in education has been to typically take a, a born digital digital first approach which makes perfect sense i mean we work in a digital learning team and, it, and it's what we know and plus designing materials that are digital from the outset 
allows us to do lots of things that can make make these puzzles, these games far more accessible. So I know that uh, Rochelle's done some work, for example, on uh, escape rooms and using things like OneNote for, for escape rooms by password protecting notebooks and pages within that document. And so we wanted to explore the, the digital escape room, but we also wanted to take that a step further as well and think, well, how about an escape room in general that has some digital artifacts and puzzles within it, but it's also a physical space. It's a physical room. So how would we make physical puzzles accessible? And I think that's where it came to. So coming from the the public sector bodies, accessibility regulations back in 2018 and trying to, to take a playful approach in it and see how we can employ this to, to an escape room and do it in a flexible way so it could be used in, in a number of dis- different disciplines. It wasn't specific to a set discipline. We can take this in a number of different ways. What were the key challenges that you found in uh, this project? So one of the, the initial challenges is that we were working with a large team and some people remotely and some people uh, were able to meet face-to-face in person. So I think in exploring some of the options for escape room puzzles and doing things that are both digital and physical, um, so just finding time to get everyone together to meet and go through uh, the ideas that we had. I'm pleased to say that that worked really well and we were able to meet uh, fairly regularly to to sort of flesh out some ideas. And often we would just take ideas away to say uh, and task people with looking at the literature, what's been done before in this space, have a go, watch through um, escape room escape rooms being completed on on YouTube, for example, and unpick them and see some of the challenges that people face along the way in terms of accessibility and inclusion. What about the key challenges that people with different needs might face when accessing traditional escape rooms? What were the what were the issues that you found in the literature and and maybe through experience yourself? I think a, a real challenge when we were doing this was choosing where our focus should be. Um and I, I came into the project quite late Um, So I was one of the people who was a remote worker who joined the team later, was really grateful for the opportunity to get involved. Um, But it was actually quite difficult to know whether to go ahead with this and try and create an accessible escape room ourselves. But then the concern there was that we were potentially not talking to something that we'd experienced personally. Um, And I, I don't know whether Ross's experience was different in this sense, but I know that literature, although there is some great literature out there in this kind of field, there's not a huge amount that advises you on what to do in a situation where you might have a student with additional needs or whatever else you might find yourself in. Um, So it was really difficult to then come from a literature perspective as well. We were conscious that we didn't want to... um posing the problem but also uh necessarily su- suggesting that you know that we we necessarily find the solution as well we wanted to sort of surface some of these issues but sort of research a bit more broadly around it and speak to some other people as well and i, I feel like we did that pretty effectively as well when we were actually doing the session because it became much more of a discussion than certainly i anticipated it was going to be 
And if I remember right, isn't that where the more came from? The fact that we didn't want to talk to other people's experience and... I mean, I think I suggested that. Well, there we go. That that was a fantastic suggestion. Because obviously I I was involved in building a part of the, uh, you know, one, one of the interactions that we actually came up with. And I was very conscious throughout all of it that I was like doing the best I could, but with a slightly limited tool set. So there was always going to be, there were always going to be problems with it. It was never going to be perfectly accessible. So that was the best I thought I could do was make it more accessible and highlight the areas where it still wasn't accessible. No, I think that it was really important to highlight the the more accessibility, uh, the more accessible escape room aspect of this because accessibility isn't something that you complete as such. There isn't th- that sort of end point where you've done it. We we would ne- we realized quite early on that we were never going to get to the point where we say, okay, this escape room or these escape room puzzles that we've developed are fully accessible. There's always more that you can do, and that's where that addition of the the more accessible escape room came in. And we were very, very careful to highlight that at the start of our presentation as well. I found my part of this quite a a learning experience just for myself because, I mean, I'd used screen readers before in more sort of limited contexts, but when I was trying to test this thing on a phone using the built-in screen reader, it just left me feeling like, oh God, this is the this is the experience that people are going to have of this thing that I've made, and it's really not good enough. You know, I had those similar experiences myself. You know, there was um, when when we got onto designing the puzzles. So, uh, I think it's it's probably uh, I'll come back to your your initial question, Nick, and I think you were you were asking about sort of what were some of the initial limitations and frustrations that we found with traditional puzzles and I think it's worth sort of going back to that at at this point so um so I think we quickly well I'll say quickly we 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 reached the point where we decided that trying to create a full escape room where each puzzle unlocks a clue to the next one essentially we thought that is perhaps giving this session this workshop the wrong focus because people get would get too um, involved in in just trying in in the puzzle and the story and the narrative itself, but perhaps would skim over some of the um, features that we'd built into it to highlight uh, to highlight some of the accessibility provisions that we'd designed in. So to that end, what we we were doing is we started at the point of saying, let's focus just on puzzles. Let's not try and create a full escape room. Let's focus on the puzzles with the idea that these puzzles can be uh, deployed into uh, a physical escape room, essentially. And they would be designed in such a way that they'd be flexible and that, you know, it could fit a narrative that is already in an escape room or, or be designed into a brand new escape room, for example. So to that end, we started looking at... Um, let's say, more traditional puzzles. So things like um, padlocks, um, combination locks, um, puzzles that would rely on, um, let's say, for instance, distinguishing uh, different colors to unlock a clue. And we were, we sort of 
pulled them apart and thought, well, what would the limitations be? You know, if I, if I was somebody that had visual impairments, how, how could I, um, how could I unlock essentially a, a puzzle that is, re- that asks you to um, develop a pattern between using four different colors, for instance, it just wouldn't be possible. So, um, so we were going through some, some traditional puzzles and, and some of them we had here uh, from previous escape rooms we'd ran. So things like combination locks, locked boxes. Um, s- some of them were, for instance, uh, printable PDFs, for example, uh, a maths puzzle we looked at, for instance. And so we used these traditional puzzles as our starting point. And then that started to give this whole project uh, more of a focus. And we and that's when we identified that we would develop four puzzles, essentially. Uh, two of them were digital and two were physical. And they would be designed in such a way that they were flexible enough to be deployed and, and integrated into uh, an escape room, essentially. Can you discuss some of the specifics around the adaptations that you made uh, and the different activities that you ended up designing? The first one, we started with uh, a traditional lock, essentially. So think of a, a three combination lock, for example. We were thinking, how, how would we make that more accessible? And we decided, in, well, in fact, this one um, was one of the ones that you designed, Nick. Sure, sure. I think I think the, the part of the uh, the process was that you asked for a digital lock but then kept asking me to make a puzzle. So I didn't know what I was making. So I ended up making a puzzle that was also a lock. <laughs> um, so I, I ended up, uh, I, was, I think the thing is that if you go make a digital lock, just a, just a lock, then it, it sort of becomes a bit, well, okay, I'm going to enter a code here and it'll show me something. I could knock that up in 10 minutes and with another 20 minutes, make it as accessible as it could be, you know? Um, so what I ended up making was a game. It was basically um, a game that showed you three padlocks that you had to unlock. And uh, it was it worked like a Simon game. So it would show you a pattern of buttons that you would then have to repeat. And uh, there were three stages, as I said. So as, as the stages were on, the pattern got longer. So you had to remember more of the pattern to repeat each time. Um, obviously with this, I had to think about accessibility from different perspectives. So I had the buttons be, um, different colors. Um, and also they had different shapes on them so that if you couldn't distinguish the colors, you could distinguish the shapes. And then also, um, they made a sound when you tap them or when they were activated as in like when the when the program was showing you the pattern in the first place, it would read out the num- the color of the pattern. So um, that's that was kind of the, the mechanism for it. Uh, I'd made it in articulate storyline, which was its own set of headaches, um, but it did work. Um, I was able to get it so that I designed it to fit on a mobile phone screen. So it wasn't designed to be really be played on a desktop so it was kind of vertical in design um i ended up using i I had started out making the buttons play noises when you pressed them or when they were activated but that was a little bit too obscure so i switched quite late on i switched that up to being um just me reading them out basically reading out the 
the the color of the the symbol um and then by the time you got to the end you had um the final unlock screen which is where you could put you know if it was in an escape room context you could put a clue to the next puzzle or anything i ended up just putting a a tiny video of a very happy doggy uh, on the end as a little prize for managing to do it all it was quite hard to develop i think it took about a week in total um and because of some of the limitations of storyline it did it required a lot of using like um quite heavy use of triggers and uh, custom variables and all that kind of thing oh the other thing i did also was have it so that there was two different color schemes so there was a standard kind of high contrast color scheme which was like black background kind of yellow uh contrast for the navigation um, and then the colored buttons and then the other thing uh the other option was to look at a dyslexia friendly version which had much more muted uh background color sort of paler colors and you could choose between three different background colors for that as well so um that was something I wanted to do at the beginning, but wasn't sure I actually had time to finish. So I was quite happy when I managed to get that working. Well, I think you did a fantastic job on it, though, Nick. I mean, it was really comprehensive what you did. I thought the design of it was excellent. And, uh, you know, I, I am conscious that we sort of uh, gave you a fairly uh, loose brief. I think that would probably be kind, actually, saying a loose brief to begin with. But um, but no, you, you, you really sort of could sit, you really sort of took it upon yourself and, and gave it really attention to detail and I think that we sort of I think to be honest we probably went above and beyond what we what we set out to do so in terms of the physical puzzles what we'd done uh, to begin with of that with we'd started with um trying to essentially create a, a, a physical lockbox but the physical lockbox that we'd seen to date, uh, uh, typically they'll have, say, a combination lock to unlock them. It might be a physical key to unlock them. But we're thinking, well, you know, that is it is relying on sight and dexterity to to open those boxes. And it's not really giving the user sort of any feedback of of, of kind of what, what this puzzle is, how to unlock it. And so we took that as our as our starting point essentially. And so so what we did is we sort of designed um, a mock-up of what we thought would be a more accessible lockbox. So I'm just looking at this in front of us, the sketch we'd done. I say, wait, i got to give Malcolm credit for his sketch, which is fantastic. Um, and so what we'd looked is at a, at a puzzle that had essentially, there, there was two of them, but the first one had um four four buttons essentially so it, it it was it was a sequence to to unlock this box and so we were thinking well what are some of the the provisions that we could make uh, to make this far more accessible so the ones we'd looked at before when we'd looked at similar sort of sequence based uh, lock boxes like this typically they'll have say four colored buttons it might be a red, a green, a blue, and a yellow button, and pressing them in a certain order would unlock the box. But other than the other than the different coloured buttons, we were thinking, well, what if you couldn't see or had a sort of a severe visual impairment? How 
or even color blindness, for example, how would you distinguish between these colors? And so what we want to do there is we thought, well, how about if not only each of these buttons are a different color, but they're also a different shape as well? So as part of the, the, the sort of design brief that we did is create them so where there was one was a circle, one was a square, one was a triangle, and one was a sort of crescent moon shape. And so we went with that to begin with, and we thought if all you were relying on is touch, if you could feel and distinguish between those four buttons, I think that would really help from an accessibility point of view. So as part of this as well, the other one of the other provisions we thought of is, well, how about some audio feedback as well? So what we're able, what we designed in is the idea that this lockbox would have speakers built in. And so if you if you pressed on the first button, it would give you audio feedback about what you've pressed. And it'll also give you feedback of whether that is the the correct button to press or not. And I think that the final thing that we did with this in our in our design brief essentially is we wanted to see if it's possible to have haptic feedback as well. So essentially for for this for these buttons to to vibrate as you press them and the the sort of intensity or or the pattern or, or tones that those vibrations make are each of them are, are distinct between each of the buttons and if a user gets the right sequence they unlock a box and within within the tray you could essentially put in a, a puzzle or a clue that w- that would help you solve the next challenge so i think this was this was our idea at this at this stage it exists as ideas and a sketch on paper but one of the biggest challenges is how are we going to do this because this would require quite a lot of work and so you know we thought well we could talk through this as a concept and a, and a, and an idea and if we could get somebody to make this box and program it as well then they could take it a step further but we didn't know at this stage whether that would be doable uh, it was but it was quite fortunate that um, I'd recently been working on a project with some staff in physics and they put me in touch with um, Dr. Jason Anderson, who works as an electronics technician in physics. And he spends uh, most of his time uh, supporting academic staff and students in, in sort of realizing the uh, physical and electronics based um artifacts that they're designing in physics and we sort of just by chance thought he probably won't have time but let's let's ask would would he have time and can can we interest him in this project and getting involved in it and much to my delight Jason said yeah this sounds like a great idea and he would be happy to help us at this stage we were only about I would say five or six weeks away from the conference. So we thought, well, he's agreed that he could in principle help us with this, but is it actually doable, you know, within this time scale? And uh, I was shocked that he was able to say, oh yeah, that that's plenty of time. It's more of the time than we usually have for working on these sorts of things. So quickly we're able to go from showing him a sketch to him bringing over um lots of bits of electronic equipment. So he brought over 
in a meeting things like an Arduino and he had things like um, RFID sensors that you that you could uh, scan. They had um, little LEDs plugged into it, and so it, we, we were able, we were just sort of fleshing out ideas at this stage and just seeing kind of what's possible. And I would say, oh, is, is it possible to do this? And he said, well, that's possibly doable. And he would he would rewire a few parts on on the Arduino, and then he could show me in in sort of real time what's possible and that was absolutely invaluable so what we used for this is we used um arduinos in a 3d printed box and it had things like um, arcade buttons on the top of the puzzles another puzzle used rfid sensors so little kind of uh, plastic shapes with sensors underneath that you could scan to unlock the puzzle so there's there was two variations on the same puzzle essentially in in showing the team uh, an update of this, sort of a proof of concept that we had, or, or well, it was more than the proof of concept. This was kind of version 1.0 of the uh, physical lockbox. I was able to show the team just over a, a, a Teams call, and I just shared on my camera how how these puzzles work. So I, can, I walked through it of showing, you know, if you press this button and then this button and then this button, and this button eventually it would unlock the physical lockbox. And I think it was you, Nick, that picked up on that. You said, "Ah, oh, there's there's different printed shapes around these buttons." Without that feedback, I don't think it was something that we would have necessarily made revisions to the lockboxes for. Because they, essentially, because we were limited by time, we had um, the the three D the the three D printer would either print in all in black or all in white. And, and we ended up having uh, one of each, one black, one white. But the but the, but the the shapes around it, whether that be a circle or a pentagon or a triangle, for instance, these these were the same color essentially as the box itself. So it, it's black on black or white on white. So it, it was very hard to distinguish. So uh, one of the things that we ended up doing um, only a week or so before we went to the conference is uh, is painting uh, the shapes around them to 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 really kind of show off that we had made these provisions because otherwise we thought it may be overlooked. So there I was with um, a few days before the conference with a with a black sharpie <laughs> painting the the shapes around the white box and and doing the same with with the uh, with the black boxes as well with acrylic paints. And so you know those were one of those things that we can look back on and kind of sort of laugh about now to some extent in terms of we were making these provisions right at the at the sort of 11th hour but I think that in terms of accessibility picking up on those kind of details is absolutely crucial and I think it really paid off on the day when people were able to try these puzzles out for real. I think this is a really really good point now and it's a really important thing to sort of remind yourself I guess when you're looking at accessibility not just for escape rooms but more broadly because I think sometimes you get really embroiled in okay I've got to meet these standards and you kind of lose the periphery of what it actually means and it's really really important to go back and check and also to get feedback from somebody else and say okay I've done this this is what I think is right what's your view on it and I think that's something that you did quite organically like as a group and I think that was really really helpful and I think that kind of emergence 
and having that mindset of, okay, this is what we're working with. I think that's the kind of thing that we need to do more of and encourage a little bit more in other people as well. So well done for that. But I think it was great. And I think it was a very good thing to have happened. But I think that's one of the beauties of working in education and in a sort of research role is that we're very we're very accustomed to to sort of not being protective over things. We, you know, we work on on something, and then the the next step is is to share that and get feedback. And you know, and it's something that we do on a regular basis. I don't think as a team we're ever sort of. I think we're all very receptive to to sort of taking on feedback, and I think that the only thing that limited us really was time. I, mean, I think we got. I think we're able to make quite a few sort of revisions between us, you know, bouncing ideas off each other and thinking, okay, this is where it's at now. How can we take it a step further? Let's get some other perspectives on this. Uh, But I think that, you know, hopefully it doesn't stop here. Hopefully we can, we can continue working on this and, and take it a step further because we've got to where we are now, but I'm sure that if we revisited, um, this concept of the the more accessible escape room, we could take this an awful lot further. Absolutely. I think um, it's fair to say that certainly like commercial escape rooms don't really think about this sort of stuff necessarily. Um, so I think it's, it's good that the conversation is happening in the kind of academic space and hopefully it will then trickle out into, uh, into the commercial space as well, because you know, everyone wants to go and have fun and it's no fun if you turn up and you go, oh, well, I can't do any of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. If this was um, sort of a commercial uh, company producing this, I think that they would have um, their ideas of, of kind of what the, what these puzzles should be and that they, they would be sort of fairly locked down by that point and, uh, and you couldn't really... Um, make adaptations yourself and I think we were very careful to design that in from the outset that these puzzles could be adapted and amended and I mean all of the puzzles that we created the the four of them we said we would all of these would be released under creative commons license so if other if other educational researchers and and the people who attended our session um you know prime candidates for this if if people wanted to take these puzzles that we've created a step further they can do so they can get access um to for instance for these arduino puzzles they can we will publish sort of a full parts list we'll publish the code um and so you can make tweaks to this you can change it you can make it more complicated if you want to you can change the audio files for to, if you wanted to give different audio feedback you could take change the intensity on the haptic feedback for instance so all of this can be taken a step further and and i mean i'm hoping that um some people who attended our session they did express some interest in this i'm hoping that they would be willing to take on the work that we've done as it stands now and take it a step further and you never know at a future playful learning conference that people may be presenting um 
you know, version 2.0 of the more accessible escape so, room. So um, I think that uh, moves us on nicely to actually talk about the presentation itself that you did. How did the how did the workshop that you that you did at Playful Learning, how did that go? So I think the first thing that we were sort of grappling with to, to some extent is that we wanted it obviously to be a workshop. We wanted it to be playful. We wanted it to be very hands-on. But we also wanted to be able to discuss and uh, present some of the all of this background work that had gone on beforehand. So I think the, the first challenge that we had is kind of how much of this um, will be interactive and how much will be a presentation. And I think we struck a, a fairly nice balance in the end. I think we we sort of used a, a presentation to, to, pro, to provide, I think we used a presentation as the backdrop essentially to, to discuss what we'd done. But, but as we got to each puzzle, we're able to present these in order and actually allow people to take part in them and have a go at them themselves. So for instance, the digital puzzles, we had QR codes on the slide so people could uh, scan the QR code with their mobile devices and then have a go at them themselves, whether they wanted to do that as individuals or, or pair up or work as an entire team on the table, for instance. When it came to the the physical puzzles, we had them just at, at, at the front of the room, and we we had four puzzles. We got people into four groups, and uh, and we handed those out and let people explore them at their leisure. And so, as people interacted with each puzzle, we sort of just took um, feedback on as we went. So as as people after people had to go at the first puzzle, I think people were it was you know. Um, it wasn't a huge group. There was say 20 or so there. And so people were all very comfortable to just share their sort of observations and their feedback as they encountered. I think that's one of the things I found quite surprising though about presenting to this group. And I don't know why it surprised me. So it was obviously at Playful Learning Conference. I think you kind of, you have an idea that it's going to be people who are interested in playfulness, but I didn't anticipate that the group would be so open to just giving feedback like quite often when I deliver workshops certainly if you ask for feedback you have to prompt um and it wasn't the case at all with this it it felt like we went in and just had a conversation which I I actually was really grateful for because that wasn't how I'd anticipated it would go but I think we got more out of it and hopefully those people who attended got more out of it as a result of that because we we did have some challenges in there and we had a lot of questions about why we'd done things the way we had and why we'd approached it that way and that I felt for me made me really think about well this is why we've approached it that way and it's really important to be upfront about our process in developing this so that people can understand how we've got to that point and I yeah, as a, as I sort of say, I, I found that really valuable. Would you say that it felt more like a focus group or a testing session than a workshop? I think um, it did felt perhaps somewhat more of a of a testing session. So, I there, there were some is, interesting observations that came up along the way. Um, I think perhaps in is to be expected in, in this space is that I think people perhaps this is unfair and so and Rochelle jump in and and stop me if you think that this is unfair but I think that 
perhaps people weren't, ne- you know, participants um, in our session weren't necessarily focusing on kind of what we had done as such, but more highlighting the the shortcomings in many areas. So I think that they would, for instance, um, one of the points that was picked up on was this feels more like a puzzle as opposed to um, just a a locked box, for example. So, so I think that was one observation that we picked up on, and that's and that sparked an awful lot of uh, discussion. And so, and so I think what happened is, I mean, in in one respect, it was a, it was a dialogue, and it was very organic. But equally, in the back of my mind, I was thinking we only have an hour for this session, and I was thinking we have to be mindful of time and to be able to get through it and make sure that we give equal attention to each puzzle. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think that I completely agree with what you said. And I, I had exactly the same feeling. One thing that we maybe didn't discuss before we went into present is the fact that our audience might know a lot about escape rooms, um, which, which they certainly did. And I think that was great because it meant we got some great discussion, but it it also was quite challenging then as people who were presenting to not only manage that discussion but also adequately answer questions and like Ross said give equal time to puzzles but also give equal time to people who are giving us feedback and taking the time to engage really really heavily and be sort of that engaged in the thing that we were talking about which you don't really have and it's it's not something that I felt necessarily equipped to handle because I'm I'm not used to that sort of level of intense engagement um I think though the thing that came out of it was that a lot of people were really inspired and we had a lot of questions and a lot of conversation beyond the workshop about how people might go about doing this in their own practice and I think that's testament to the work that people put in beforehand understanding what to do and I think it also shows that even though it may have felt a little bit uncomfortable during the session because it felt different, certainly for me, I think it was a good thing because we had deeper conversations that has actually meant that it was more impactful. I also think it raises an interesting question about what is a puzzle? You know, how do you define a puzzle and how do you define a lockbox? Because I would have said a lockbox is a puzzle in itself in that you need to find something to allow you to open it. I don't personally see the distinction between finding numbers to put in a padlock and shapes to put in a particular order. It seems to me like something that's very similar in effect and intent, but just looks different. So where do you think uh, you or others could go next with this subject? First of all, I think that more research can be done with Uh, users with disabilities for example because we were very keen to sort of not claim to to have had that sort of authentic experience ourselves we were we were sort of designing uh, and developing these puzzles based on our research but we weren't claiming to be the experts in this area so I think more user testing with with a, a broader range of testers would be valuable I think another way to take this forward would be to um, to work with 
with an escape room. So we had conversations with um, escape room designers in Durham, for example. And so perhaps we could take these puzzles, or even one or two of them, to the escape room and see, could these be designed in to a new escape room? Or could our puzzles or artifacts that we've created be uh, used as sort of substitutes for existing puzzles that are in there that provides a more accessible escape room experience. So I think that's a couple of ways that I can see this uh, moving forward. So I think that I would really hope that we could see, like Ross said, more people using activities like this within escape rooms, even if it's something where you give options and make it even more complicated, which I love. I love complicated things and potentially make a branching escape room so somebody can choose whether or not they do a puzzle that is accessible or has a different perspective. Because I think it's really, really important to point out here that in everything that we designed and in all of the feedback that we got and the conversation we had, none of these puzzles took anything away. If anything, they added elements and the it was all of the added extras that I think for me is what makes this so exciting because I think quite often people come at accessibility from a deficit model. And I think this kind of shows that actually you can plan things that are accessible and they give a different experience to people, which is a really positive thing. And so I think that's something that I hope to see a little bit more of, not just in an escape room context, but I'm a learning designer. So also a learning design context. Um, I think in terms of the work we've done, we've started something really exciting. Again, I'm really happy to be exploring this with a group of amazing people. And I I hope that we'll look to add to literature ourselves in the future, because like I said at the beginning, we really struggled to find things that were practical and things that people were really doing in the classroom that had any kind of feedback and experience from others who tried it out and I'd like for us to be able to add to that and to give something back to the community and give some practical guidance I guess. Yeah I just wanted to add that um, as part of developing the resource that I did um, I was also able to give a significant level of feedback to Articulate, the company that makes Storyline, to highlight the deficiencies that I found in the way they had approached some of their accessibility features and some of the holes in it um, that could do with being filled. So I think that's always quite valuable as well as when you can give them a load of bugs to go and fix. It was really interesting to talk to Ross and Rochelle about how the accessible escape room session went, given that I wasn't able to be there. It was really nice just to hear about the feedback that we got and um, the questions that people had. Escape rooms were a bit of a focus this year. Uh, and Rochelle discussed the escape room design workshop with Julie Mulvey and Robin Watson. All right, well, today we are joined by Robin Watson and Julie Mulvey, and they're going to be talking to, to us about a session that they did at the Playful Learning Conference. And their session was on escape rooms and how to develop one online. I, for one, am really looking forward to this conversation. As you may know, escape rooms are something that I'm very keen on. Um, I'm also getting pretty well known for locking myself in my own escape room. So thank you very much for joining us, Robin and Julie. And over to you. My name is Julie Mulvey. I'm a senior digital education consultant 
um, at Durham University, part of the Durham Centre for Academic Development. Yeah, my name is Robin Watson. I formerly was a PhD student at Durham University. I finished just this year, so I'm kind of fresh out of the pan, I suppose, as it were. Um, so I was part of the anthropology uh, anthropology department, um, and my project was kind of across the psychology and anthropology department. But um, yeah, so I kind of I suppose got involved with this by um, by the fact that DCAD were offering um, offering the opportunity to be involved with an escape room project. So I kind of said, yeah, that feels like quite a nice thing to do. So I kind of ended up getting involved um, with two of the projects that they ran kind of in, under that vein. We started off with escape rooms. Um, going back to um, 2019, uh, DCAD was just at its very beginnings and um, an Erasmus Plus project came our way. It started off as Manchester Met, uh, but was transitioned to Durham University, basically because the lead investigator moved institutions. So I became involved with what was known as the School Break Erasmus Plus um, project. So it was an amalgamation of partnerships between um, institutions in Ireland, Durham, uh, Italy, Switzerland, Spain, I'm sure there's one other. Anyway, there were six of us. And basically, the remit was to think about escape rooms in education, how we could introduce escape rooms to teachers, how teachers could introduce escape rooms to school children or students, and how the students could develop escape rooms. And so that was a starting point for us. And I have to admit that I didn't do the brunt of the work of this because that was all down to Robin and a team of PGR students. Yeah. Um, so as I basically recall it, um, so as far as I was, as far as I knew, it wasn't kind of part of the wider project. I only became, I guess, um, aware of that at a later point. But um, so DCAN had said, oh, we wanted to do kind of the development of an escape room workshop, so learn about sort of puzzle design, all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm generally kind of interested in this sort of thing. Um, done quite a lot of personal uh, escape rooms kind of personally um, and obviously been interested in gaming for quite a while so this this kind of really appealed to me um, so we got put into small groups um, and we had to design a puzzle that was kind of based around uh, one of the rooms in the oriental museum so uh, for example the room that we were in was sort of um, had kind of various different artifacts around and stuff so we tried to create some puzzles that um, sort of integrated that as much as possible um, now, obviously, I can't take full credit for all of the puzzles because uh, there was there was me and um, there was me and three others who were working on it. But um, that was kind of, I guess, the rebit of the project, and uh, we sort of trialed it with some of the DCAD people. And as I recall, you, you guys quite enjoyed it, at least from what I remember, Julie. It was a really interesting thing to have an escape room within the Oriental Museum, where you had lots of real artifacts um, just a, a stone's throw away, and yet playing puzzles that you'd developed um, within the escape room that um, that the PGRs that we were all sort of taking. Um, unfortunately, uh, we we well we we did the puzzles and then we were hit by COVID, weren't we? Um, so we were at the point where we, we wanted to evaluate um, the feedback from participants. Uh, but COVID hit at a time where we literally had to abandon everything. All the puzzles and everything were just left in um, a room and um, we had to walk away from it. And and that caused us a few 
um, questions about how we could proceed, how we could go further with this project. And then you came, you were involved in the online version of an escape room. Yeah, I, I actually, I can't really remember exactly how that started. Um, as, as I recall it, I think it was something that, again, my friends had actually done uh, outside of university. Obviously, we'd, we'd actually done an online escape room that someone had built in Google Forms, and we ended up really enjoying it. So, um, I mean, I don't, again, I'm not trying to take credit for, for this kind of starting, but as I recall, I sent a message to Simon Reese, who was the one who would kind of, um, well, I guess the one been spearheading, I suppose, the original project, at least as far from the side of recruiting PGRs. Um, and I said, oh, hey, we, we did this escape room uh, online the other day, and we, we thought it was really cool. And he said, actually, that does sound cool. I wonder if we could develop it into something um, sort of, again, that we could use going forward for PGRs. So the group that I worked with um, from the Oriental Museum and a, and a few kind of others who were wanted to be involved, we sort of tried to do the same sorts of thing. Uh, we initially started in Forms, uh, but we did actually move back to Google Forms because uh, the team's interface was being a bit challenging. But yeah, we sort of tried to create a kind of online proxy, I suppose, of the Oriental Museum escape room just with the I guess the context of um, giving information to PGRs. Um, it, as I recall, it, again, it did work quite well. Um, maybe could have used a little bit more testing, perhaps. Uh, we maybe didn't get the testing as thorough, perhaps, as we did for the Oriental Museum. But again, the, I think the project was pretty successful and we came up with some reasonably interesting things. So again, I, I, I sort of remember really enjoying it. Well, they were, they were successful enough that we, we wrote them up. And as part of the school break project, um, we provided all the, the, these two escape rooms, both online and physical, all documented so that anyone can go to the school break, school-break.eu website and download these escape rooms and try them out for themselves, learning something from them, some handbooks in there of guidance about creating escape rooms. And so there were resources from all of these six institutions. So I, I encourage anybody to sort of try and visit that website and have a look if they want to have a look at escape rooms within education. So that all sounds absolutely fantastic. How did you take it from being the school break project and make it into something that you went on to present at the Playful Learning Conference? The school break team, as we were, were meant to go to um, Leicester during lockdown. And obviously that didn't happen. We were going to have everybody from all of the partner institutions present something about school break. Because COVID hit, um, I was involved with delivering some of our findings during webinars and, and conferences. But uh, we had, um, I wanted to sort of advertise the work that um, the, the, the PGRs and Simon Reese's team had done as part of the school break project. We claimed ownership of it because, quite frankly, we didn't have teams, anybody else, to sort of build escape rooms during COVID. So um, we learned a lot from what uh, Robin and his co um, cohort of students were developing. We wanted to sort of take that away to the Playful Learning Conference, and, and Robin and I sat and chatted about this. And, and it was Robin's suggestion that it's really difficult to develop a puzzle. Why don't we give some puzzles to the, uh, the work as a workshop that maybe have some flaws in them and ask the, ask the delegates to sort of unpick them? One of the kind of biggest, I suppose, um, roadblocks in developing an escape room, I mean, it's not so much coming up with the sort of 
I guess the idea for the setting, I mean, that kind of came quite naturally from trying to use the objects and stuff we had available at the Oriental Museum, but it's more so coming up with actual puzzles. I mean, getting a puzzle that's both challenging enough, uh, but can still be solved, I guess, by anybody with the information you give them, and also is not going to be frustrating or kind of unclear, is, is actually, it's really, really hard. Um, I mean, you know, so difficult, in fact, that... Um, you know, a lot of the puzzles we actually did originally develop, we ended up having to cut because they, you know, they just weren't really working. So um, as part of the session, what I was really hoping uh, we could do is to uh, basically show people some puzzles that I'd kind of drafted up um, and stimulate some discussion about, you know, what elements of these puzzles works well. So, you know, they'll try, you know, at least try to make them at least a bit fun. Uh, but equally, what about them maybe um, is perhaps not so good or sort of is unclear or perhaps makes it difficult to solve or indeed impossible to solve actually without um, sort of existing knowledge. Um, and again, the idea was to try and get people thinking about, I guess, A, that puzzles are very difficult to make, uh, but B, you know, what, what can we do to try and um, kind of improve our puzzle design, I suppose. Um, all the while sharing what we've done with the online escape room by showing how this all can be done um, using Google Forms, which, you know, it's nicely accessible and, and kind of anybody could have a go at. So that was sort of the, the goal of the session, I suppose. And how did that go at the conference? Um, and did you get many people who attended your session? We were slightly disappointed because only seven people turned up for our session. Um, but we were competing with sunshine weather. And I think um, everybody was tired at this point. Um, so lots of, we could see them out the windows. Lots of people were taking, taking advantage of the sunshine and being out in the garden. But for the seven people that came, they were interested in some of the ideas, um, that we had, couldn't understand some of the puzzles that, that we were getting them to work through. And the, it was the getting them to understand that they're not right. They're not puzzled. Why are the puzzles not right? What what made it about that puzzle that made it difficult? Is it a misunderstanding with the instructions? Was it not scaffolded? And these were sort of this this was the idea that triggered off off the discussion. So the seven people that came, um, I think, um, enjoyed it after the end, and they went away thinking about puzzle design which was the aim of the, the workshop as it was yeah exactly yeah I think so I think um you know just to get people kind of thinking about I guess how to make a good puzzle I mean I suppose just to give a bit of an example so I suppose you know what we're talking about um one of the puzzles that I um drafted up was that the, the puzzle itself is reasonably straightforward um you present you presented people with um pictures and you had to come up with a numerical answer so it was just a case of how many effectively I think was the the sort of the clue I gave and um, the, the kind of issue here was twofold really it's one that a lot of the pictures were fairly ambiguous so one of the pictures I showed it was a picture of the earth and it just said um, how many now this could refer to how many planets in the solar system which was the answer I was looking for but it could easily have been how many countries how many oceans how many continents I mean the, the list is practically endless right so some and so that was kind of issue one but issue two was that um, it, it relies on general knowledge that we didn't provide people. So if you, you know, for example, didn't know how many planets were in the solar system, I know that's you know reasonably common knowledge, but if you didn't know that, you cannot possibly solve that puzzle. You, you would be, without a clue, you would be completely stuck. Um, and that can leave people feeling, you know, super demoralized and frustrated if, if they meet a puzzle like that. So um, bit of an aside to kind of show you what we were talking about. But no, as, as we said, I think really the goal of the session was to sort of just uh, hopefully stimulate some discussion or get people think about 
you know, how they could develop puzzles and hopefully try and avoid some of these pitfalls that we as a team um, at the Oriental Museum and the online escape room kind of met with and, and sort of worked through ourselves. I mean, none of us are proposing to be experts here, but from our experience in what we've done, uh, we were rather hoping we could share some of those, you know, insights with the, with the people at the conference. Just out of curiosity, did people manage to solve that puzzle? Were they aware of what you were asking them for? I think, as I recall, yes, that one, they did figure it out. I mean, so the, the planet one was a little more obvious. Uh, the one that I, I put in there to be intentionally really annoying was how many miles, how many furlongs were in a mile? Um, so it was a picture of a horse. It just said um, one, was it one mile equals question furlongs? I, I had no idea what that was prior to Googling it, making the puzzle. So uh, I think people, as I recall, didn't get that one. Julius, is my memory serving me right here? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, think, I think there were a few mobile phones coming out at that point. Yeah, exactly. Which isn't a good sign. <laughs> I mean, is, is, was that something that you allowed? Did you allow them to Google the answer in the event that they didn't know? Or was it much more general knowledge based? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely could. And we weren't going to stop them and say, put your phones away to test. But I mean, I think really the point was that if you are having to get your mobile phone out and Google things, something has gone a bit wrong in the puzzle creation stage. You know, you shouldn't, unless you're providing all the information that one needs to solve the puzzle. Um, I would wait. I would suggest at least that your puzzle probably needs rethinking a little bit, um, unless you're relying on incredibly like obvious general knowledge, like grass is green, for example. I mean, I think most people would know that, but you know, you can't rely on somebody knowing that there are eight furlongs in a mile. I, in fact, I think that's right. It'd be really embarrassing if I was now getting this wrong myself. But I guess that would that would illustrate the point quite nicely, really. <laughs> I, I think the biggest takeaway that we wanted them to go away was that, that it isn't easy to create a puzzle. It is, you have to do something else with it. You you create it and then you test it and test it again and then test it again. And you do lots of different audiences. And it, just because you think you understand it doesn't mean to say that somebody else will interpret what you've written or how you've designed it in the same way and and it's an eye-opener to think actually I I didn't I didn't think that they would do it that way and so it was to get them to think how would they have scaffolded it and you know what would they have done next time and and this is this iterative process with um the the puzzle the puzzle development of it is do it test it with one group, test it with a different group, test it with another group until until you get a repetitive um, response. So you know that you're in the right area. So you're not, you don't want a puzzle that somebody can't get, they can't proceed, they feel demoralized. It's got to be something that's got to be challenging, but doable. So escape rooms are something that I'm really interested in personally as well. Um, I'm just curious, how do you handle hints so I understand what you're saying about iterative design, and I think that's super important in escape rooms and testing out with different groups. In that sort of situation, do you plan it so that you can give people hints to lead them towards the right answer, or do you just let people figure it out for themselves and make sure that your puzzle is at a level that it's it's solvable, no matter where you're coming from yeah I, mean, I guess to i guess to jump in with with the hints i mean for the for the session that we ran we weren't really intending to give hints i mean i certainly hadn't prepared any ahead of time um so in that session i suppose we we're just going to let people struggle with them and again it was sort of to illustrate the point really um but when we designed the oriental museum we had some pre-prepared hints and to a certain extent you just kind of have to read the room and see how people are getting on so 
I mean, some kind of really sort of um, confident escape roomists, escape room people. We'll go with that. Um, they kind of fly through puzzles and they don't really need any help at all. But some people who are perhaps, you know, not sort of so familiar with escape rooms or maybe haven't done any before, that they can need a bit more help. And it's kind of at your discretion, really, to, to give hints when you feel people need them. Because I think struggling with a puzzle can be fun. Uh, but if you let them struggle for too long, that fun turns into frustration. And then after, if it gets to that point, the ex whole experience just becomes really negative. And I think, for me at least, uh, from being an escape room participant and someone who's had some experience running them, I think avoiding that is probably the biggest thing I I would take away from, from giving hints. You need to make sure that they don't get towards that frustrated stage. Yeah. I mean, I've been in an escape room where we work collaboratively as a team through the puzzles and, and that's great. But when you divide off onto your own, if, the, if you've got... So the escape room scenario is that the four of us worked together on the first puzzle. On the second puzzle, we all had to work independently on an individual puzzle and then collectively get back. If you can't do your bit and you're on your own, then you feel like you let everybody down. So you've got to have some sort of um, monitor to sort of say, well, um, watch what's going on. So as the escape room master, whatever, um, be able to step in and give a clue to go forward. But you don't really know that until you've tried them out and then realize there's a sticking point at some point. And it would be all very good to understand that and have all the hints um, ready, built from day one. But you don't know that until you've Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it it's quite um, related, I suppose, to what you said earlier, where you just don't know how people are going to respond to certain puzzles. I mean, you can test a puzzle... 10, 15 times, and then you'll get one person who just looks at it completely differently and they do something that you just you just absolutely didn't understand or I guess you didn't preconceive was even a way that you could approach it. But for them, it seems completely logical. And I think, again, that's just another reason why why designing puzzles is just hard, like it's difficult. Um, so kind of giving hints, I suppose, is one way to manage that. But inevitably, the process is going to be fairly imperfect. So just a question. So I'm gathering from the way that you're both speaking that you're quite interested in escape rooms. Do you have a favorite puzzle type? And if so, what is it? So I like directional things, although I don't like directional locks, because if you forget the direction, it's very difficult to, to un unpick and find the answer out for a multi-directional lock. But I do like multi-directional puzzles. Yeah, actually, I remember we got asked this uh, when we applied to be on the Oriental Museum team. I remember I had to put that on, my, um, on the little, uh, you know, feedback form or whatever. So, yeah, the answer I gave then is probably the same I'm going to give now. And that's, uh, so it's a puzzle that's it's known as the Einstein riddle. Now, to be clear, I suppose, apparently there's no real evidence that Einstein was the one who came up with it, but that's how people know it. But anyway, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, I suppose, the, the puzzle is a basic, it's a logic puzzle. So you have to work out from a series of clues, uh, which of the uh, people living in these different houses owns the fish. Um, but the reason I like it, I suppose, is that it's just kind of, you get all the information you could possibly need. It's just a case of logically going through each possibility and, and kind of working out which of which of the clues fit where and, and things like that. So that, they're the kind of puzzles I really like, the ones that just kind of need sort of cold, hard, brute force logic almost. Um, with, uh, I suppose, a qualification that, like Julie says, I find directional padlocks really fun. Uh, so any any way that I can integrate a puzzle like that with a directional padlock would make me really happy. Uh, I mean, it's probably it's probably no coincidence really that the puzzles I came up with um, on the Oriental Museum were of that nature, uh, sort of a little bit Einstein's uh, riddle-ish. 
So there were so, for example, one of them was uh, where you had to work out what uh, the adventurer's favorite animal was, uh, which is kind of infamous, I suppose, because Julie always talks about it with the fact that the number seven was almost impossible to spot. Um, but <laughs> nonetheless, I think the puzzle was quite fun. Uh, so yeah, if that kind of answers your question, I suppose I've, I've slightly um, I've slightly put that into what I've ended up doing as well in my puzzle design. So I really like those answers. So I'm quite keen on visual puzzles. So I really really like the type of puzzles where you have to change your perspective to see what it's actually saying um which is ironic because i'm i'm not very good visually so i think from your answers and from my answer that we would make a very good escape room team because we've all got very different preferences and i think that that just kind of follows on from your key takeaways and some of the things you were highlighting there about different people perceiving things in different ways yeah, I think that's it. I think that's a really important uh, part of having a good escape room team. I think some of the more successful ones we've done, again, kind of some of the professional ones is when we've had quite a diverse group and kind of we're all, we're all sort of, I guess, feeling it on the day to, to put it in a certain way. And we all just kind of get into our zone and solve our own individual bits. I mean, that 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 is when we've had the most success. Um, but again, as Julie said, sometimes when you have a room that is a bit nonlinear and you can solve different bits at once, um, it's really easy for you to basically really struggle for whatever reason with the particular puzzle or se- section that you've been given or I guess ended up with given implies that some kind of adjudicator more so you just end up in a corner of the room and get stuck there but um yeah that can be a bit frustrating uh, but yeah no I think diversification is good in puzzle design and indeed in puzzle solving too absolutely um so the last question I've got to ask you is where next so i've heard lots about the school break project and how you've made that into something that you're able to share with others and we've had some great conversations about what you enjoy with escape rooms the kind of things that are really important to think about in puzzle design but where next what's your plans well i know that dcad um we have now quite a collection um in our escape room cupboard of of locks and padlocks and safes and wooden puzzles and boxes and bags and um, I I did see the shopping list Robin for the Oriental Museum where we have rucksacks with umbrellas in and you know the whole um, the whole cupboard is now full of things that you can use in in escape rooms so I think we just need to spend some time possibly now that the school break has now finished, so that that is that has now ended, um, what what are we going to do with it next? And that now that COVID's not here, we we can get out and about. I know we have um, some visit to I think the Durham escape rooms coming up to sort of see what the professional. I've not had that experience of what a professional um, escape room is like. So. Um, and looking at accessibility, what we can do with a multitude of different types of puzzles. Um, I do a little escape room to introduce people to escape rooms that has all the different kinds of padlocks and all the diff- lots of different kinds of puzzles just to sort of introduce them to different things. So I'd like to develop that so that people can just come in to the building and just say, we'd like to try this two or three people in a room and have it set up and, and let that rotate just to spark that interest. Um, but but me personally um, thinking 
one of the things that we did at the Playful Learning Conference and, and Robin was involved <coughs> was that we looked at, um, we did a second session on called Question uh, about Oculus Quests. So we, uh, look, we looked at VR headsets and that, that was interesting to just sort of introduce. It's the same with escape rooms, introducing people to what an escape room idea is. And we did that with the VR headsets, people who'd never tried it, introduced them to what a virtual reality experience was like. And so, you know, it's in having continuing with the escape rooms to introduce people to what the escape rooms are like and then looking at what VR's gonna be like. So we've got some ideas. Robin's now uh, working at another institution. Do you want to talk about that, Robin? Yeah, I could just, I suppose, briefly mention where I've um, sort of ended up. So, yeah, f- um, I'm working at uh, Warwick Psychology Department at the moment as a as a research fellow. So, admittedly, um, the work that I'm doing there is, is is not really particularly related, I suppose, to the stuff that we did with the escape room. I mean, the escape room stuff was, was almost a, a hobby, really. Um, I mean, it was something kind of external to my PhD that isn't related to my, to my research. Um, I mean, it's still related in some ways because, I mean, psychology has quite a lot to say about really any aspect of human behavior I mean not least puzzle solving and learning but um it was something that wasn't directly related to my research so I suppose in terms of to answer the question you know what what next for me well in my own personal life I have little doubt that I'll keep doing um being interested in gaming and keep being interested in escape rooms I know my friend has some vouchers to use uh in York which we're hoping to um to book a room there at some point because I mean the professional rooms are really good fun Julie if you've not done one before um I think you'll really enjoy it um some of them are really, really good, uh, particularly in, in Newcastle. Some of, some of them are really, really good in Newcastle. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's something hopefully I'm going to be doing personally. Um, and in terms of professionally, I mean, it, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, I'm, I'm still not 100% sure, I guess, where the, the, the end, end goal for me is, I suppose. But um, one thing that certainly did strike me from the Playful Learning Conference and something that I'm hopefully going to, you know, to in some way hopefully take on board is that there was a huge amount of ways that people were using games to um, teach different things. So... One really cool example that um, in one of the sessions that someone had described or, or I guess had shown us was um, a game to teach kind of the dynamics of biology, uh, which I thought was a really, really cool idea because, I mean, biology, obviously, you know, evolution dynamics are fairly, fairly complicated in terms of the evolution of traits and all that sort of stuff. But they developed a game in order to communicate that to their undergraduates. And, um, you know, they'd kind of had a couple of years worth of funding, so it was reasonably well developed. And I think something like that or using a game in that way, I think could be really, really cool. Um, so I don't have any formal plans as of now, um, but it's definitely something that if the opportunity presented itself, I would absolutely love to be a part of uh, in whatever capacity that looked like. Just finding a way to to get people to, to play games and, and find a way to make learning as fun as possible with something, I don't know, like statistics, for example, that often is a little bit um, daunting, I suppose, for some people who don't have perhaps a numerically focused background. It'd be really cool to find a way to, to get those people um, sort of more engaged. So as many people will know, escape rooms are something that's, that are really close to my heart. I'm absolutely in my element when I'm locking people in a room and giving them a time limit to escape. Not really sure what that says about me. It was really, really great to speak to Julie and Robin and have that interaction with some like-minded people. And it was great to get into what kind of puzzles we prefer. Thank you very much to both Julie and Robin for such a fantastic conversation P.S. Don't call the police on me. Yeah, P.S. Don't call the police on me. (laughs) 
So that's it for this episode. We'll be back soon talking about more things to do with pedagogy. In the meantime, I've been Nicola Fern, and you can find me on Twitter at Nicola Fern. And I've been Rochelle O'Brien, and you can find me on Twitter at Rochelle E. O'Brien. And I want to know about your puzzles, so tweet me.